Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during the work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global SALT conference series, uh, which we were looking forward to welcoming today's guest to that conference in May. Unfortunately, it had to be canceled, but we're, uh, we have a consolation prize today having him on a great SALT Talks. So we're very much looking forward to that. But really, our goal here is to provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today uh, to welcome General H.R. McMaster to SALT Talks. Uh, General McMaster is the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's a native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, he graduated from the, the United States Military Academy in 1984. Uh, he served as an Army officer for 34 years and retired as a Lieutenant General in 2018. He remained on active duty while serving as the 26th Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs within the Trump administration. Uh, he also taught history at West Point and holds a PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is where I grew up, go Tar Heels. Uh, he's also the author of his most recent book, Battlegrounds, which is a groundbreaking assessment of America's place in the world, drawing from his long engagement with all the issues that he talks about in the book, including 34 years of service in the U.S. Army, with multiple tours of duty in battlegrounds overseas, and his 13 months as national security advisor in the Trump White House. A reminder, if you have any questions for General McMaster during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Skybridge founder and managing partner, Anthony Scaramucci, who also served brief briefly in the Trump administration along with General McMaster. A funny story about that before we get started, General McMaster is a very nice guy. And so when Anthony came and joined the Trump administration, he said, Anthony, I wanna throw you a welcome party. Um, 11 days later, that welcome party still hadn't taken place. So General McMaster asked Anthony, he said, what are we gonna do about the party, Anthony? Maybe we'll just turn it into a farewell party. And that's what they did. So. General McMaster and his wife were very gracious in welcoming and uh, saying thank you to Anthony for his brief tenure in the White House. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. HR, is that like a fun way to start the interview? I mean, is this guy unbelievable? Okay, you know, he's getting his two week notice, okay, at Friday, uh, today at 4 p.m. Is that is that nice? But in all seriousness, that was one of the more fun moments of my uh, short-lived career, uh, <laughs> eat, eating those hamburgers in your backyard. I think we were at Fort McNair. Isn't that correct? Yeah, sir? absolutely. At all right. Fort so McNair. that was, that was a lot of fun for me. That's about, that's a lesson for all the young people out there. You got to turn, you got to turn lemons into lemonade. If you get fired from the White House after 11 days, you better have a friend in General McMaster. He's hey, going to serve hey. you beer when you need the beer. <laughs> okay. So let's go right to the top of, uh, your life. Cause I think this is, uh, super important part of your story that I obviously want to delve into our nation's national security and some of your thoughts and opinions on our country, our, our amazing country. Uh, but you went to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Why did you do that? Uh, what, what gave you that inclination? Well, I'll tell you, Anthony, ever since my youngest, my earliest memory, I wanted to serve in the Army, right? And it, it was a combination of, I think, both my mom and my dad. My mom was a teacher and an educator, uh, and and I you know I became a voracious reader of history uh, from a really young age. You know, reading the kind of the juvenile books on you know, biographies and so forth. 
And then my father, he fought in, in the Korean War. He enlisted at the age of 17 to fight in Korea. And then he stayed in the reserves. And so I would see him in his uniform, you know, going uh, going to Germantown, the Germantown neighborhood in Philadelphia, where the Army Reserve Infantry Unit was, where he was a first sergeant, and then later a company commander after he got a direct commission. So I always wanted to lead, lead soldiers. I want to be part of a, a unit uh, that, that was committed to a mission bigger than themselves, where you can build teams. You know, I, I grew up playing sports. Uh, you know, I, I think that that fostering the kind of teamwork and the cohesion within a military unit, and then to be able to, to, to operate together in tough uh, conditions and overcome challenges for a, right, a righteous cause, I mean, you can't beat that. And so I, I really was grateful for the opportunity to go to West Point and, and obviously to serve in the Army for 34 years. So let, let me hold up the book. I, you, you know I'm not one for self-promotion or for other people's promotion, right? You know I'm a very low-key and somewhat shy guy, but let me hold up the book, okay? <laughs> And there is the book. You look like one mean, tough son of a bitch on the book, okay? But Katie and I and your daughters know that you're like a little teddy bear. But look, there you are on the book looking great. Why did you write the book? You also had another best-selling book called The Dereliction of a Duty. I will tell you, I read this book about three weeks ago, HR, and it is a brilliant expose on what is going on in the world. I would particularly emphasize in your book the stuff you're writing about Vladimir Putin and the government of Russia and really what their plans are. I think it's uh, it's necessary reading for all concerned citizens of the United States and frankly, citizens of the world. But why did you write the book, sir? Well, th well thanks, Anthony. You know, I, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, where I served for many years, I was on the receiving end of these policies and strategies developed in Washington that made no sense on the ground in, in these places. And so what I wanted to do is write a book that can contribute to an improvement in our strategic competence, our ability to implement a sustained and sensible foreign policy to build a better future for generations to come. And, and what, I, what I argue in the book, one of the themes in the, in the book, Anthony, is this idea of strategic narcissism, that we tend to define the world only in relation to us and assume that what we do is going to be decisive uh, to achieving a favorable outcome or what we decide not to do. And what we don't do is we don't consider the agency, the influence, the authorship over the future that the other has, especially our rivals, uh, our enemies, and our adversaries. And, and so it's an argument for us to compete more effectively, to improve our strategic competence, but in so doing as well, Anthony, to restore our confidence, confidence in who we are as a people. This is one of our, our big vulnerabilities these days, I think, is how divided we are and how vitriolic this partisan discourse is, you know, especially in this election year, but it's it's been this way for, for years. Well, let, I, I want to get to that in a second, but I want to stay on strategic narcissism. There's another term you're using in the book called strategic empathy, which I think is the opposite of that. So can you define both of those terms for our viewers and listeners? Sure. So strategic narcissism, as, as I mentioned, defines the world only in relation to us. And therefore, what we don't do is we don't we don't really consider that the other has a say in the future course of events. It's a profoundly arrogant you know, approach to, to the world. Empathy is, is really our ability to consider in particular the ideology, the emotions, the aspirations that drive and constrain the other. And when we, if we don't have this quality of strategic empathy, a term I borrowed from my friend and a great historian named Zachary Shore, is, is that we, we, we misunderstand the challenges that, that we're facing. 
uh, we create opportunities for our adversaries and, and uh, we, we develop policies and strategies that are actually counterproductive and based on wrong assumptions. So for example, I'll just go quickly through these. I mean, China you know, is based on the assumption that China is gonna liberalize, right? They're, they're gonna play by the rules. Uh, and they're going to liberalize their form of governance as well. Well, that assumption turned out to be false, that that Vladimir Putin, across three administrations, Anthony, that, that he's going to change. He's going to be like the Grinch of Christmas. His heart's going to grow two sizes bigger. He's going to, he's going to treat uh, Europe and, and, and the US, United States and the West broadly in a, in a fundamentally different way if we just reach out to him. Iran, you know, if we just conciliate the Iranian regime and welcome them in uh, to, to the international community, you know, they'll stop their 44-decade-long proxy war, you know, against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel, and the Arab monarchies. I could go on, but I, what, what, if, there's, if there's a organization to the book, it's to try to understand how the past produced the present as the best way to project into the future, to examine the assumptions on which our policies and strategies have, have been based, scrutinize them, test them, uh, and then and then come up with a, with a, a, a more full understanding of the challenge we're facing and, and make some recommendations. Okay, so I, I think look, it's a brilliant assessment of what's going on. You're also offering some great recommendations in the book. Um, you you state early on in the book and throughout the book that you feel that even though you may have some policy disagreements with the current administration or you may have disagreements with the president himself, you sort of see yourself in the in the tradition of George Catlett Marshall, uh, who was the chief of staff of the army, went on to become the secretary of state for Harry Truman, uh, arguably one of the most noblest Americans. I think the two of us would agree on that. And he sort of had this theory of staying out of the political fray, which was consistent with what George Washington said long ago. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know in your interviews, you sort of push aside some of the more polemical discussion, the political elements of that. Tell us why. Well, I mean, you, you know, you and I have talked about this. First, I get your advice on this as well. I, you know, I, I really think that that uh, our military has to stay, stay out of politics, right? And as a serving officer, and serving officer as national security advisor, I did my duty to the as best as I could for the fifth commander in chief under whom I served uh, since I entered entered West Point. And you know, if you go back to our founders, you know, George Washington's grandparents fled the English Civil War. And George Washington had in his foremost in his mind, keep that bold line, you know, between the military and, and domestic politics. The founders also really worried about factions, political parties today, and how that how how advocacy for a faction rather than a focus on our common identity, our common interests as Americans, could drive us apart from one another. And again, in their minds, they're thinking of. Oliver Cromwell, English Civil War. Let's not do that. And so, I, as a historian, I'm very sensitive to that, and, and it's very sensitive to any sort of indication that even in retirement, that I, that I would get involved in in partisan politics. I think it's important to keep the bold line in place. And also, Anthony, I think that you know what America didn't need at this stage <laughs> is like another tell-all book, you know, about the Trump administration. The problems, as you know, and the challenges we're facing, they're bigger than any one person. They're bigger than even the president. And of course, we don't live in a monarchy. And so what, what I'm hoping is that is that people can will read the book, think about it, have you know, have respectful uh, discussions about the challenges we're facing. And I hope maybe expect more from our government officials broadly uh, in connection with a, a sound and, and much more effective foreign policy. So, so 
Listen, we, we agree intellectually on that, but we also have talked about another great uh, general, General Cincinnatus. And so uh, for those uh, on the call that don't remember General Cincinnatus, he was a great Roman general during the time of the Republic, and he was up on his farm, and he was asked to come down to Rome to, to put down the insurrection. And when he met with his fellow centurions, the insurrection abated, and the Roman senators wanted to make him a dictator. And he said, no, uh, I've been called to serve, and I'm here to serve. I'm not here to rule. I'm going back to my form. And obviously, George Washington uh, asserted that many times. Our city, uh, great city, Cincinnati, is named after him. And so you have some of your colleagues, uh, uh, Admiral McRaven, uh, General Mattis, uh, General Kelly, which is the great irony there, HR, as you know, he fired me pretty swiftly, but him and I have become personal friends. It just goes to show you never hold a grudge. But all three of them have spoken out in different ways about President Trump. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, it's June 1st. The president's clearing Lafayette Square. Uh, he's using the military to do that. Uh, and then he's there with a photo op. Obviously, General Milley didn't like that. He had to speak out about it. Secretary Esper didn't like that. And General Mattis wrote about it in the Atlantic magazine saying that this was a misuse of the military, and he felt that the president was a threat to the Constitution. I asked John Kelly on a salt talk like this if he agreed with General Mattis. You agree with General Mattis, General McMaster? You know, I, I, I have made the choice, Anthony, not to criticize the president, Vice President Biden, any, anybody personally. What I do have no problem uh, doing is, is, uh, is criticizing decisions and, and policies of, of President Trump or really anybody, because I think we have to have these open discussions as Americans. You know, in the book, I'm very critical of, of a lot of the Trump administration's foreign policy. I'm very positive about certain aspects of it, like China, for example. Lafayette Square was it was a mistake. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. It was it's regrettable. It was a bad decision. It was uh, it was unhelpful uh, in in what should be an effort to bring us all together as Americans. But you know what's happening, Anthony, is like is okay. That's bad. And then the reaction to it can be just as bad, right? I mean, you know, the suggestion, for example, uh, that, that you know, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff will have a role in a presidential transition that was made by, by Vice President Biden and others. I mean, that's, you know, that's irresponsible as well. I mean, the great thing about our Constitution is the executive branch has no say in the transition. And, and our, our, our founders were brilliant, I think, in, in connection with anticipating what could go wrong. One of the things that could go wrong is the military getting involved in politics. That would be terrible. Another thing that would be terrible uh, would would be uh, would be the military getting involved in transition or the executive, the, the sitting president, having a say. The, the, who has a say? The American people have a say, and then also the Congress and the judiciary. The executive branch plays no role. Well, you know, the country's two hundred and forty-four years old. Uh, we've had uh, two hundred years of presidential transition of power, right? We'll take it back to uh, 1800. Uh, we've always had a peaceful transition of power. It's a remarkable thing about the American experiment where the losers in the election are willing to be uh, ruled by or served by the winners in the election. And so uh, the president has said that it's not 100% sanctified in his mind that he would accept a peaceful transfer of power. He's quite dismissive about it when he's asked about it. How do you feel about that? Do you have an opinion about that, sir? Well, yeah, it's just it's just wrong, Anthony. <laughs> so you know the uh, what I write about in in the book is how we were we were talking about Russia, but it's it's other actors, but mainly Russia's in the lead on this. 
what they want to do is diminish our confidence, right? Our confidence in who we are as a people, our common identity. They want to diminish our confidence in our democratic principles and our institutions and processes. And so uh, for, for leaders to say, hey, well, the, uh, the election might not be fair, might be rigged or something, that's, that's like playing right into their hands. It's being our own worst enemy. And really, you know, in 2016, uh, and I think in this year, 2020, I don't think Vladimir Putin cares who, who wins. I don't think he cared in 2016. In fact, in 2016, the Russians, I think, were as surprised as anybody that Donald Trump won. They had a whole campaign ready to go that said, hey, Hillary Clinton won because the election was rigged. Oh, and then they shifted it quite quickly because they started that campaign and they realized, oh, wow, Trump won. So they shifted it to uh, the President Trump would have won the popular vote if it wasn't rigged. And so what they're trying to do is, is sow doubts, sow doubts about our, dem our democracy. And, and no leader should give them space to do that, right? I mean, I, I think that it's just unwise. You know, I describe uh, you know, Putin's campaign of dis uh, disruption, disinformation, and denial. And, and you actually, to combat it, you have to start in the opposite order. Right? You, have to, you have to get rid of his ability to deny it by pulling the curtain back on that activity, showing it to our fellow Americans, and that's the first step in inoculating ourselves against this really sophisticated campaign of political subversion. So, you know, I think we're in agreement. We have internal and we have external threats. And so if you had to tick off some of the major national security threats for the United States, what would they be? You know, I think you, got, you have to put China at the top, Anthony. So, and, and the reason is China has tremendous resources and they are extremely well organized and determined to promote their authoritarian mercantilist model in a way that will make the world less free, less prosperous, and less safe. And, and uh, the party is driven by emotion mainly, fear, fear of losing their exclusive grip on power, fear of, of, of chaos, but, but also aspiration, aspiration to, in Xi Jinping's words, take center stage in the world. The way they're doing that is with a very sophisticated strategy, and again, I, use alliteration again, of co-option, coercion, and concealment. And, and their, their strategies aim to, uh, to create servile relationships, for example, across the world, and especially in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, in a way that will exclude the United States and, and others. And you know, I think what's really important for Americans to understand now is that you know, this isn't just a US-China problem, right? I think there's this Tennessee to personalize everything out around President Trump. You know, this Xi Jinping is not acting this way because Donald Trump is so mean. Actually, I think the Trump administration put into place a very important and overdue shift in, in our foreign policy toward China, the one of competition and recognizing China as a rival. And, and I think it's very important that you know, whoever's sworn in on January 20th carry on that, that competitive approach. Well, at, at the same time, you know, and we can quibble about the style, but I, I do give the credit. I, I'm not going to demonize the president, whatever my disagreements are with him. I do give him credit for having good instincts as it relates to certain uh, things related to China. Uh, but the president's also preaching something related to isolationism. And uh, we've been combating this for several hundred years. Uh, obviously, FDR had to combat it in 38, yeah. 39, and 40. He was vexed in terms of what to do, but he knew that America needed to get involved in the next global conflict. Uh, it's sort of almost a prevention mechanism. Uh, General Mattis has said this to President Trump. I know you have said this to President Trump, that our position around the world is almost like a life insurance premium to prevent a catastrophe or a casualty insurance premium. 
this way we're there, it'll prevent something from further getting heated. Do you think the president is right about his isolationist uh, stance at this point in world history? Or where would you like to see our foreign policy? Well, I think this idea that our disengagement from complex challenges overseas, challenges that have big implications for our security, that's a big, it's a big mistake. And, and, and the areas in the book that I'm most critical of, of the Trump administration's policy and of President Trump are, are areas in which he has replicated and in some ways exceeded the flaws of the Obama administration approach to some of these problem sets. You know, Afghanistan's heartbreaking to me, Anthony. I, I think that it's not only regrettable that, and that we'll pay a price for it, but it's really reprehensible that we would partner really with the Taliban against the Afghan government. You know, partner with like this 5% of the people who support the Taliban against like the 95% of Afghans who want nothing to do uh, with this brutal, murderous organization because they lived under the hell of the Taliban from, from 1996 to 2001. They know what it's, good, what it's gonna be like. So Americans might say, okay, God, we've been there almost 20 years. Like, what are we doing? But you know, as I, as I lay out, it has not been a 20-year war. It's been a, a one-year war 20 times over. It's been, you know, it's been a, a war in which we, I think if we had deliberately set out to screw it up, we couldn't have done worse. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I think that there is a way to partner with the Afghans as part of a multinational effort and sustain very, very important counter-terrorist efforts there, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for a relatively low, low cost. But it is this drive to disengage that is a danger. I see the well, same you, kind of dynamic in, in the Middle East as well. And, and and I'm not arguing, you know, I, I don't think we should have like hundreds of thousands of troops there. These should be expensive uh, engagements. But it's really that sustained effort that enables our diplomatic efforts. And it keeps us secure. I mean, hey, if we learn anything from COVID, right, it ought to be problems that develop overseas, once they reach our shores, can only be dealt with at an absorbent cost, right? Better to better to contain and deal with it abroad than to let it reach our shores. I, 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 yeah, listen, we agree. You, you, you say something in the book. I was just wondering if you could encapsulate it for our listeners and viewers about isolationism and about the potential crisis that could unfold as a result of a disengaged America around the world. I was wondering if you could encapsulate that that force. I think it's a brilliant assessment of Afghanistan. I will also point out to people to please read the book because you go around the world literally, and it is a playbook and manual for exactly what's going on in the world and what America needs to do to respond to it. But let's stick on the isolationism for a second because lots of Americans are confused by this, General McMaster, and I'd like them to hear it from you uh, why there's so so much danger in isolationism. Well, you know, first of all, uh, it is ha- it has been our alliance system. It has been our really our alliance together, military power that has prevented great power conflict for over seventy five years now. And it's it's really hard, Anthony, to prove a negative, right? But but I think it's a really good thing that we haven't had great power conflict for seventy five years. And so our, our our alliance system and forward positioned U.S. forces, not even a lot of them, but a significant number that integrate with our allies and partners, that, that's what gives you deterrence by denial. What that means is you're convincing a potential enemy, in this case, you could say China and Russia, these powers on the Eurasian landmass, that they can't accomplish their objectives with the use of force. And, and that's a good thing to prevent conflict, obviously, that would, be, that would be devastating. In connection with jihadist terrorism, for example, that problem isn't going away, Anthony. It's going to be with us for multiple generations. I mean, the 
what I, what I read about is, is how this ISIS and Al-Qaeda alumni, their orders of magnitude larger than the Mujahideen alumni of the resistance to Soviet occupation in Afghanistan. And it was that Mujahideen alumni who committed you know, ma mass murder in, in your home city, Anthony, in, in New York on September 11th, 2001, and in Washington and over a field in, in Pennsylvania. This is not a theoretical case. And we know that many other attacks in Europe uh, were the result of ISIS gaining strength uh, when, it, when it controlled a land mass the, the size of Britain. And so that, that, that uh, the rise of ISIS didn't just happen, right? It happened because you know, Vice President Biden called President Obama in 2011 from, from Iraq and said, thank you for allowing me to end this war. And of course, wars don't end when one side disengages. And we disengaged in large measure diplomatically as well. What that resulted in is a return of large-scale sectarian violence in Iraq that set the conditions for ISIS to come back. And, and so, so just when you think the situation in the Middle East can't get worse, it actually can. And, and it's our sustained engagement there that can create opportunities. Opportunities, uh, I think, such as those that you see now with the Abraham Accords, opportunities to isolate Iran, uh, who is pouring fuel on this destructive sectarian civil war and, and, and exacerbating the... Uh, the humanitarian crisis associated with it. Listen, I, I was in uh, Iraq in Baghdad in January 2011. Uh, Arab Spring, as you remember, was bubbling up. Uh, General Austin, you remember General Lloyd Austin? Sure. Uh, he is one tall SOB. I mean, I felt like I needed stilts <laughs> to talk to the guy. But well, it was those we, big guys. It was it was Austin and Odierno were two right. four stars. Yeah, Ray, 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 Ray is a tall SOB. Ray is the tallest HR. Ray is the tallest Italian I've ever met in my life, actually. I'm convinced that he's probably not Italian, but that's a whole other topic. But I mean, and, and also, also they both sport uh, some, some very handsome hairstyle. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes, no, I remember that too. And, and of course, you have a very handsome hairstyle yourself, HR. We'll we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about what we could do to help you there. But uh, I'm in I'm in Baghdad. It's uh, January 2011. Uh, General Austin, we ask him a question. Part of a Ben's movement, you know, the business sector, national security. I said, what what what, what should the troop level be? He says twenty thousand. Uh, the Obama administration takes it down to zero. He says, oh, God, God forbid you can't do that because it'll lead to the rise of Daesh, also known as ISIS. So it plays right into what you're saying in the book, and it, it confirms that we need to depoliticize some of this stuff. But again, the American people, uh, they need to be educated about this. And once they are, uh, I, think they'll help, I think they'll be reaching a consensus decision closer to where you are. I'll talk about the president again for a second, because I was only there for 11 days, but we did have some fun together, you and I our interactions and with President Trump. Uh, how would you describe to the average person your interactions with the president in discussing national security? Did he, did he, did he have a worldview? Was he being educated by your worldview? Was there a level of dogmatism or was there a level of flexibility? How would you describe those interactions? Well, Anthony, as, as you know, he's kind of reflexively contrarian as part of his style. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, as a national security advisor, it's a unique position. It's a position of, of, of privilege and, and confidence because- Okay, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you there because that was like some serious military language there with the reflexively contrarian. So let me <laughs> stop you because basically what you're saying is you tell him something and he'd wanna do the exact opposite, which well, is quote unquote reflexively contrarian. <laughs> and so I just try to figure out what is that all about with the president, well, but go, well, go I mean, ahead, you know, reflexively well, contrarian. <laughs> 
you know, he questions conventional wisdom, right? If you come in with the shiny course of action, right? And you say, hey, everybody agrees. This is the perfect thing for you to do. This is what you should do. That's not going to work, right? I mean, so what, what, what I realized is, you know, I, I could come up with the perfect, you know, the perfect process, the perfect course of action. We could do it, you know, not me personally, but I could facilitate that from across the departments and agencies. Uh, and, and, but what we needed to do, I felt, and I think this is true for any president, actually, Anthony, is I owed him multiple options, right? I, need, I needed to give him a say in, in determining his foreign policy agenda and, and putting into place his policies and strategies. And, you know, Anthony, I mean, I was only there for 13 months, obviously. I can only speak to those months I was there. I think it worked in those 13 months. That approach of giving multiple options, because what that allows you to do is to use a, what are our goals? What are our objectives as, as a way to, to evaluate those, those, those courses of action? And you can assess them based on the degree to which they advance your interests, the degree of cost, the degree of risk and so forth. And, and I, think, I think that produced good, good results in, in connection with the national security strategy, but also, as I mentioned, big shifts in foreign policy, you know, on, on Iran and, and China and, and, you know, it could go on, you know, even you know, Venezuela, Cuba, what, but that process worked. No, I don't know what happened if I left. I mean, I'm not in a position to judge it, uh, but but I think you know I, one of the you know one of my lessons from writing about the Vietnam period was that it was a disservice to Lyndon Johnson to tell Lyndon Johnson what Lyndon Johnson wanted to hear, and I was determined, you know, that I would not do that because it would be a disservice to the president and the country, and you know I think that's one of the one of the aspects of how I approached my job that you know that may have limited my my shelf life. Which I was at peace with. I mean, it was you know, I when I took the job, Anthony, I, I decided I was going to retire out of that job. It was in many ways a bonus round for me. In 2017, I was thinking about retiring from active duty. In 2017, so when I had this opportunity to continue serving, to continue serving, to serve a new president as national security advisor, I decided at that moment when I'm when I'm done, I'm done, and and it's time for me to uh, to retire from our army as well. Well, it was also a bonus round for me, General. It was a little shorter bonus round. I'd have to calculate the number of mooches 13 months actually is. Uh, I have two last questions. I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy for uh, questions from our audience. But uh, you write about in the book these stationary islands that are being manufactured in the South China Sea and parts of uh, the Far Eastern Pacific by the Chinese government. Uh, it's sort of an encroachment on international waters, it could even be an encroachment on Japanese territory and other uh, sovereigns in Asia. Uh, how serious should we be taking that threat? And what do you think that means for the U.S. At, in terms of its national security? Yeah, Anthony, we should take it very seriously because I believe Xi Jinping thinks he's winning right now. You know, he looks at us, he looks at the divisions in our society, uh, sparked in large measure, you know, by the murder of George Floyd. He looks at our vitriolic partisan uh, you know, environment that we're in, the, the crises of a pandemic and the recession associated with it. And you know, he's, a, he's, he's a dictator. He's probably in, in an echo chamber saying, hey, you're on top. You're doing well. And he already believed that he had only a fleeting window of opportunity to realize the China dream, to take center stage. And what you're seeing is aggression in the South China Sea, as you mentioned, where he's destroyed complete ecosystems, by the way, to build these islands and militarize them. And if he succeeds, it will be the, the largest land grab, so to speak, in history. But what he's also doing, he's also passing a national security law that is repressing human freedom in Hong Kong. He is engaged in a campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang. I mean, 
you know, Uyghur birth rates are down 60%. It, it's abhorrent what's happening as over a million people are now crammed into concentration camps. And he last week, Xi Jinping says, hey, I'm building some, some additions onto those, those concentration camps. I'm going to put more people in there for re-education. But then you look at COVID-19, wolf warrior diplomacy, bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier, the threats toward Taiwan, the threats toward Japan. It is a flashpoint. I think Taiwan's a flashpoint, the South China Sea. And what I think all this shows you, not to mention massive cyber attacks, right, is against us and against medical research facilities in the middle of a pandemic. This shows you, hey, this isn't a US-China problem. This is a free world uh, China problem. And it's time for us to really focus on, on this threat and do our best to deter further aggression and convince the Chinese Communist Party leadership, hey, you need to change your behavior or we're going to have to impose unacceptable costs on you economically in, in particular. I think it's a it's a very uh, dour but realistic assessment of what's going on. You write a lot about it in the book. I encourage everybody to read the book. My last question, and we're going to turn it over. Uh, you've got a great uh, reading list. There are philosophers, scholars, military men, uh, academics. There may even be a few hedge fund managers on your reading list. Uh, tell me who's influenced you the most in your career and your thought process. Yeah, so I, I mean, a, a lot, a lot of people across my career. When I, you know, when I was at, uh, when I was, you know, my mom, you know, first of all, in terms of her, you know, her, she instilled me a sense of history. Uh, I think a, 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 the intellectual curiosity that I carried with me across my life. I mean, I, I write it that this book is the continuation of my self-education in, in, in many ways. Uh, I, I was, it's my Italian mom, Anthony, by the way, and then, and. Then, and uh, and then, and then, you know, I mean, football coach slash. History. That's one of the parts I like about HR. I just want to point that out. <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my history, my, my football coach and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and who's also my, my history teacher in, in high school, uh, you know, my spot, my sponsors at, at West Point, both, uh, both of whom were in the history department. One was also one of my rugby coaches at West Point and also a, a historian of uh, U.S. diplomatic history. Um, they, they all inspired me. Uh, Casey Brower, who was the head of the history department at West Point, he helped me pick my topic on Vietnam. I had great, great professors, great professors at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Dick Cohn, is, who's a wonderful man, was my advisor. The late Don Hagenbotham, what a great guy. Anthony, you would love this guy. He had a great sense of humor and was a great historian. <laughs> After I finished my exams, you say, congratulations, you now know more history than you will ever know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then of course, many officers influenced me in a profound way. I mean, God, my first battalion commander, Billy J. McGowan, who was, I think, I, I think maybe, you know, bigger than Odierno, <laughs> these guys, I mean, he was huge, an amazing guy, uh, African-American officer, which to be a, an armored battalion commander in, in the early eighties, you know, imagine, you know, the, the, with the changes he saw in our army, uh, through the Vietnam period, post-Vietnam period, a real charismatic leader. You know, and, and I met so many leaders who exhibited strong qualities that, I, you know, I tried to take from them. And, 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 uh, and then, of course, you see some negative examples, too. You know, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, across my career, John Abizade, who's our ambassador to Saudi Arabia now, uh, that guy was, was great to me. Dave Petraeus, I think, uh, was, has always been tremendous. Martin Dempsey, we mentioned uh, Odierno, Austin. I mean, you know, it, it really, you know, the Army's a family, you know, and. And I just think for young people, if you're listening to this, joining our military is tremendously rewarding. I think because we have a smaller professional force, not as many Americans are familiar with the less tangible rewards of service, right? Being, being part of a team 
in which the man or woman next to you is going to give everything, including their own lives for you and, and to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. And, uh, and so, you know, I, you know, I admired these leaders who I mentioned, but, you know, I admired my soldiers. <laughs> like, you know, if, if you, if you, you, the younger generation gets hammered all the time, you know, Hey, they're, you know, they're self-absorbed, you know, they don't have attention spans, you know, they, they don't understand history. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're not patriotic. I'll tell you, if you want to see, you know, the best of our country, just, I mean, just meet some of our servicemen and women. I mean, they're extraordinary people and, and, uh, and they like what they're doing. They're bound together by, by an ethos, an ethos of, of self-sacrifice and honor and a sense of duty to one another and to our country. And so, you know, we, we talked, we began talking earlier about, you know, the dangers of associating the military with, uh, with, you know, political parties. We should never do that. And, we should never associate the military with any kind of sub-identity in our country. I mean, you know, when you're when you're in combat, you know, and and you've got bullets coming your way, you're not checking skin color, you're not checking religion or sexual orientation of, of of the man or woman next to you, right? You're fighting together, right? And and I think it's just a lesson we can learn these days, you know, as divided as it seems we've become. I listen. I think it's a real lesson about the American military. I also think it's a lesson why the military is still considered one of the more trusted and more sacred institutions in our country. So I admire and appreciate all that, General. I'm gonna turn it over to John. We've got five or six minutes left to go in our SALT talk and uh, he wants to pepper you with some questions. <laughs> and oh, in, in light of uh, General McMaster's comments about you know how in the military, there's a, a sense of cohesion that maybe doesn't exist in society and politics today. We, there's an organization called With Honor General, that I don't know if, if you've ever been involved with, but uh, Rye Barcott, who founded it, is a friend of ours. I Basically, know, his goal I, I know to Rye, put, it's a great organization. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, bringing more military men and women into the political realm, because when you get people who served beside each other in the battlefield, serving next to each other in the legislative branch of the government, uh, right. you find a more you know, collective purpose than you would otherwise, where today they're at each other's throats. So we always like to plug with honor. Go donate. They support uh, house races with veterans running uh, in in local districts. So we, we encourage everybody. To and you have to you have to propose honor. bipartisan legislation as part of the covenant you sign. It's a really it's a great. Rye's done a great job with it. I, I really uh, thanks for bringing it up, John. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked earlier about how there's external threats and then there's internal threats. And what Russia has really done is tried to sow internal threats in our society, and they've frankly been pretty successful at it. The FBI recently foiled a plot from some sort of white supremacist militia groups to kidnap the governor of Michigan. They reportedly also were planning to, to kidnap the governor of Virginia, potentially, or were talking about plans to do so. How do we fix that problem? Uh, you know, let's say, let's say Trump's gone, whether it's in four years uh, or it's in four months or, or whatever it may be until uh, Inauguration Day. How do we fix that problem and how do we fight back against Russian or another country's disinformation aimed to sow internal division? Which I, I think the first thing we have to recognize is we have to take this very seriously, this polarization uh, in, in our society uh, on, 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 on all extremes, right? And what I think it's important to recognize is they, Russians don't create these divisions, right? We, we create the divisions and they exploit those divisions. Russia's efforts to divide us on, on issues of race, I mean, the Soviet unions go back to the 1920s. But hey, now they have new tools available. They have social media that already, by the algorithms that dominate social media, drive us further and further apart from each other. It, you know, because the companies seek more and more advertising revenue, which is more and more clicks, 
which is, hey, let me show you some more extreme, uh, even more extreme content to get you to click uh, even more. And then we have the issues of polarization of our political elites and uh, uh, and our media. Like, how did it become this way where if you lean in one direction politically, you watch one cable news station, you lean the other direction, you watch another one. I mean, we just had a presidential uh, you know, town halls yesterday on two separate networks. So people you know, aren't hearing both sides. They're not hearing a, 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 a civil, meaningful debate. And and uh, and and I think that even our mainstream media, you know, is you know they're kind of they're kind of destroying themselves, right, over either support for or hatred for you know Donald Trump or something. I mean, it's crazy what was happening. And so we all have to come together as Americans and be part of the solution for this. And and I think we have to we have to be intolerant of of extremists, uh, you know, like those that were that were plotting against you know against the governor. I mean, and we have to recognize though that. You know, our, our work's not going to be done easily here. That kind of that kind of extreme view is based on ignorance, I believe, fundamentally. Ignorance of you know, our history and who we are, ignorance of our democratic process, and ignorance of their fellow Americans. Right? These are these, these are people who who hate because they don't even know you know the, the people who is who are the object of their hatred. So. You know, I, I just think we have to we have to do everything we can, you know, in our communities and universities in schools and, you know, in athletic organizations that hey, let's let's get people together. Let's let's emphasize our common our, our, you know, our common identity. Hey, I think history plays a big role in this, John. I mean, I, I do think that in many ways, our young people have been <laughs> subjected to what I would say. And this might sound extreme to some people, but essentially a curriculum of self-loathing, you know, that that really portrays America as the problem in the world. And this is uh, associated with kind of the new left interpretation of, of history. I think, you know, we should be able to come together around, you know, not a contrived happy view of history, but a recognition of the, 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 the nobility of this radical idea of our revolution that sovereignty lies neither with king nor parliament, but with the people. We could also be disappointed though, that you know that our Bill of Rights and the unalienable rights in our, in our Declaration of Independence did not apply to all Americans, and it was it was only until our most destructive war that four million people were emancipated from slavery. We can also then we can celebrate that, but also be disappointed at the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of of, of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan, but then also celebrate the Civil Rights Movement and the dismantlement of of de jure. Uh, segregation and inequality of opportunity, but still recognize, hey, it's a work in progress, as our founders knew it would be, that, that our democracy had to be constantly nurtured. So I, I just think, yeah, in the in, in battlegrounds, I quote Richard Rorty, a, a, a philosopher, and uh, who you know who said he said that you know that that uh, that national pride is to nations what self-respect is to individuals, a necessary ingredient for self-improvement, right? And I think in many ways, we have to make a concerted effort to come together as Americans and restore pride in who we are. Well, General, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Again, this is another interview we feel like could have gone on for another three hours. And we apologize to everybody who asked questions that we weren't necessarily able to get to, but uh, you offered such a sweeping, uh, great analysis of everything going on domestically and in terms of our foreign policy. We're very grateful for your time. Anthony, you have a final word for General McMaster. And no, thank you we, so much for being nice to Anthony and giving him that nice farewell party when, when he uh, you know, didn't I mean, last guy, longer than a carton of I mean, milk the in guy, the White The guy's getting fired, General. I just want to make sure you know, just say hello to him. Maybe you'll see him out at the Hoover Institute, okay? But uh, <laughs> I just want to know if you're going to use the same picture when the, ch 
children's version of the book comes out. Okay, just <laughs> a little a little intimidating there, General. Okay, you may want to tone it down for the, the kids, okay? But, all right, I'll work, I'll work on that. I'll work on my softer side. All, all, all right, but in all seriousness, sir, thank you so much. We got to get you to uh, one of our live events, uh, hopefully soon, uh, once the uh, pandemic ends. My regards to the family, General, and uh, we'll see you after the election, I hope. Thanks so much, and thanks for this great forum, too. Thanks, Anthony. Take care. Great to have you on, sir.